Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Adjust Your Tracking and all the Playlist podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional, independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Movies film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem and you have one month to watch it. Visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a 30-day free trial. And Mubi doing what they always do. There's new titles popping on there all the time. Uh, one that uh, was released a couple weeks ago that I have to uh, put a huge shout out out there for that you watch it if you're using Mubi as a service. And it is the Austrian film from 2013 called October November. This is the latest film from director Gert Spielmann. He made a film called Revanche that's really, really great from uh, 2008, I believe. And this is a, a, a follow-up from that film, and it just never really got much of a U.S. release. Um, I watched this film recently, and it is fantastic. So if you liked Revanche even a little bit, I would say give this one a shot. And also just want to put a shout out there, continuing on Mubi, their uh, uh, series of Takashi Miike kind of early releases, it looks like. The prolific Japanese filmmaker uh, known for stuff like Ichi the Killer and crazy movies like that. Uh, one of his movies from 1997 called Rainy Dog, one of uh, his crime movies, uh, just popped up on Mubi as well. So you get you get the eclectic taste of uh, the curators there on Mubi doing what they do and putting out cool movies on the service. So how can you go wrong? Uh, so once again, we want to thank Mubi for supporting this show and all our other podcasts over at The Playlist. Now on to the show. Dad. You remember that song I wrote about that guy who worked at your studio who you never remembered his name? His name was Byron, but you called him Myron. Three times you called him Myron, till you heard the other guy say it with a B. Byron, 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 Byron. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, we're, uh, we're going to dig into uh, pretty much one director on this episode, am I right? We are. Uh, that director is Noah Baumbach, who um, I've been a fan of since uh, the mid to late 90s. Um, and he, uh, he's, he's one of the directors who has been like a pretty consistent like voice in independent cinema and like now has a, a film that did get a small theatrical release. Again, I don't know where those uh, <laughs> theaters are, but uh, he's one of the directors that like, you know, he, he makes a, a certain type of film, a certain type of independent film that is sort of now uh, considered, you know, prime selections for streaming services. So his latest film, which has got like a really solid ensemble, mm-hmm. uh, the Meyerwitz stories just came out on Netflix on Friday the 13th. And, uh, so he, we're going to discuss some of his canon and specifically his new movie. And his first film is my hold up pick from a few episodes ago. So we're going to get into that. But, uh, yeah, so this, this movie, um, you consider yourself a fan of Noah Baumbach, right? I, I do, although I, there are a few movies of his. I kind of go back and forth. I tend to like 
I tend to like his movies more often than not, but there are certainly a few that uh, I, I feel like I need to revisit, but I'm not a fan of. So yeah. Okay. But, what are what are some of the ones that rub you the wrong way? It's two right in a row. With uh, you had Margot at the wedding, and then Greenberg mm-hmm. actually. Okay. Yeah, I know you're a fan it's, of Greenberg. Yeah. I yeah I was but it's still it like I was not a fan of Margot the Wedding either. Mm. I feel like I have a newfound affection uh for Nicole Kidman so I want to revisit it. Yes. But it was just like there was an aggression to it that like was really thoroughly unpleasant to the point of like I know we talk about this a lot with movies feeling like atonal in their unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. Like I think people feel like there's a there's meaning in suffering, you know, even if that suffering has no sort of like ebbs and flows, no like valleys really. It's just like flat and just like this sucks, you know, the entire time. <laughs> like to me, that's just as uninteresting as something being happy throughout. And right. like Margot at the wedding had a misery that like I think his his best, most varied movies tend to depart from. Mm-hmm. And um the Meyerowitz stories, you know, his his latest, even though it has its flaws, like it it still has some of his sharpest dialogue and has some like very surprising performances from the people in the ensemble, which include Adam Sandler. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, we got Dustin Hoffman on deck. Mm-hmm. We got Ben Stiller, which like uh, it's like. Ben Stiller, I think, is like very well utilized in Noah Baumbach's work. Yes. I think he he's got a, a vibrating neurosis that really works well in the Noah Baumbach universe, <laughs> and uh, he's got like an, an an intellect that's at odds with the frustrations of the world, which seems to be like a lot of uh, what the director's like work focuses on, which is like smart people suffering and sometimes a stupid world, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Intellectuals sort of like just miserable of sometimes of their own creation and sometimes just with the reality that they're up against, mm-hmm. which is relatable now, you know, we live in a very kind of frustrating, grim world. And, uh, if you're, if you consider yourself to be of some intelligence, then you are aware. And if you are aware, you are in pain. <laughs> We're just going to leave it there, folks. End of the episode. Yeah, that's the end of the episode. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> the end. We're going to leave you with questions. Um, yes, I think you've kind of summarized his filmography quite well there. Like, that there are these commonalities. He's one of these filmmakers. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to compare him to Wes Anderson because their styles are so different. But they have right. wor- they've worked together, uh, I believe, writing Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox together. Um, there's mm-hmm. also a deep uh, Noah Baumbach feels like an evolution of what Woody Allen has been doing his entire career. He's he's certainly of that ilk, you know, like neurotic, uh, intelligent New Yorkers are often the focus of his movies. Um, deeply personal. There's that the the thing that makes me also kind of connect him thematically to Wes Anderson is this running theme of like every movie I think at least that I can think of has these um, daddy issues going on or like there's this father figure that is clearly supposed to, you know, represent Noah Baumbach's father, as far as I know. Uh, and, and he's yeah. very, he, he lays his sort of family history bare in his movies. Um, and uh, I will say one of the really interesting things about watching his newest and then his earliest feature sort of right back to back is like, you see that through line and how it's evolved from the beginning to the end. Yet 
it's still kind of the same thing. It's just his, you're kind of seeing how Noah Baumbach is maturing through that family history in, in a lot of interesting ways. Um, so yeah, yeah. with, with this story in particular, with the Meyerbit stories, new and selected, um, nice. now streaming on Netflix. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a group of siblings like from different mothers who are all dealing with the same father figure played by Dustin Hoffman. And it's sort of, uh, kind of late in his life. He's this, uh, a sculptor and this artist who sort of orbits this really pretentious New York art scene that seems to have it's it's of like a kind of bygone era and he sort of like props himself up as this like very important but overlooked figure in it and so like you know all the children are in their like 40s and 50s it seems like 40s yeah I it, think so it, and and so you're watching like through the progression of Noah Baumbach's work, like kind of uh, each stage, like the squid and the whale. You were dealing with children, dealing with their difficult parents and their fractured marriage, and their blowhard intellectual father, played by um, Jeff Daniels. <laughs> and uh, and like you know, it, you just kind of go through it, sort of like through stages of adulthood, coming to terms with like how you're raised, like with each movie, it seems like in, in, in some way, like uh, did Greenberg really deal with a father issue? Actually, I don't think so. Margot at the wedding. I don't think specifically does either. Um, yeah, but like he, you know, enough of them with like the squid and the whale and with, with this new one, like there, there is a sort of like looming daddy issue. And like, he started working with Wes Anderson after, the Royal Tenenbaums, which uh, Gene Hackman's character in The Royal Tenenbaums is a sort of like through line, even though he's a lot more cartoonish than Dustin Hoffman's character yes. in the Meyerowitz stories. There is like a connectability and a through line through these like archetypes. And uh, and there's something that's really like, you know, I mentioned the dialogue of the film mm-hmm. earlier, but like there's there's something very sharp and like concise and kind of like brutally funny about a lot of the dialogue but there's a heart to the movie that and there's just like a there's an ache and like it just a, a sort of and it doesn't really flinch away or over sentimentalize anything like it just kind of leaves it in a hard place a lot of times mm-hmm. that it's you're never going to have the type of like movie closure that you hope for like it's going to be messy and as an adult you just have to come to terms with the messiness and i think that's what a lot of the movie uh, sort of like approaches mm-hmm. and uh and my my only gripe about the film is that like i think it's at its most potent like 20 minutes before it actually concludes mm-hmm. and then as the movie sort of epilogues towards the final credits it starts like literally fading in and out mm-hmm. which i think is like a choice that you shouldn't as a filmmaker or an editor use like you should use it sparingly, mm-hmm. literally fading in and out because it's a momentum killer every time you're right. like fade in, fade out. And so the movie feels like it's it's over. No, it's not over. No, it's <laughs> over. No, it's not over. And so like it it feels like there is a conclusiveness that like the movie approaches 20 minutes before it actually does end. Mm-hmm. And so like as much as there's great stuff in the sort of epilogue section of the movie, um, it does have like less of a clip to it. And I guess that's the only, that's my only minor gripe about the film. Right. That, no, that's, that's really interesting because there is this, uh, like the pacing of each individual sort of short stories. Imagine this movie as like a, a, 
a set of short stories about the same people. It it, it does have that Royal Tenenbaums vibe to it. It has a yeah, a JD section that way too. Exactly, about like every, everybody's story, basically every right. child's story. Like title cards, it's very literary in its structure, narratively, just like Royal Tenenbaums. And also, um, you know, Tenenbaums was. It, itself sort of inspired by J.D. Salinger's The Glass Family, you know, all those short stories. Mm-hmm. It all feels of a piece. Um, but yeah, that structure goes from much longer short stories in the beginning, where you kind of are setting up the dynamics of the family and the certain major characters, and then suddenly they become much shorter at the end, like you're saying. And that there is a weird effect that comes with that fade in and fade out. Um, however, I gotta, uh, I don't think you were necessarily knocking the editing overall because i gotta say the editing in this movie is the most impressive thing about it it's great yeah i think that's that's why it stuck out to me is because there's such a there's such precision early on in the movie Mm -hmm. with like cutting mid-sentence where someone's like in the middle of like screaming and it was just like you can imagine probably who's screaming if you listen to (laughs) who is in the cast but it'll just like cut off and there's something so like bold and kind of exciting about that and precise and then to have it kind of be like drifting in and out in this sort of like meandering way. It was just like, it felt, you know, it felt mildly like antithetical to like what was kind of striking about it originally. Yeah. It's like, it's like Bombach and his editor just didn't want to, it's like they were starting to love these stories and the characters so much that they, they didn't want to like end it. So they, they kind of wanted to fit these stories in. I don't have nearly as much of a problem at the end there, but I think you make sure. a good point. There, There is definitely what feels like at least a traditional, even traditional sentimental ending. But I, I did, I guess for me, the, the last 20 minutes that follows that avoided the sort of anticlimactic problem for me because um, – I feel like it subverted so many of what we, so many things we would expect from this kind of movie. Uh, yeah. And as, it even subverts the sentimental, like, uh, speech given. I, I'll just say Ben Stiller gives a speech in this moment, this sort of, uh, like, right before this epilogue. Well, no, before the epilogue starts that we're talking, Ben Stiller gives what would normally be a very uh, sad, emotional speech. And I even found myself getting a little emotional. But then I kind of, I loved how the movie ultimately is like, it takes that away from him and kind of makes it like a joke. Like, these characters are so emotionally damaged in a lot of ways right. that they, yeah, yeah. They, they can't handle that he's being so emotional. So it's undercut and he's embarrassed. I, I just loved stuff like that. And it, it does, it sort of set up the epilogue for me where it's like, okay, we, we need to like wrap things up, but you're not going to get, it's not going to go exactly where you might expect. Well, I think that's, that's his strength as, as a writer and a director is that he's, uh, he's able to access these, like the, this like emotional moment while not compromising the kind of like, just the, the, the reality of the situation, which is that these people are flawed and fucked up (laughs) and it's going to be awkward and jumbled. And so you have this, like, this this plural pr- plur, hello plurality of experience <laughs> where like i think we talked about this a little bit or did we actually talk about manchester by the sea on an episode i don't think so no we did not okay so um but we, you and i talked about it right. um probably while we were taking a break but that they were able to have like moments in that film that were like like it wasn't that there was an emotional moment and then a laugh to relieve it to relieve it, there was like 
both happening simultaneously mm-hmm. that there was the hysteria of like a tragedy that you're dealing with and at the same time you're laughing about something else that's happening because it's all happening at once and mm-hmm. so like that speech like watching ben stiller in that speech which typically like you said it would be on the rails of being this like kind of moment of sentimentality and catharsis for everybody and it would bring meaning to everything but it was like this this it was a emotionally resonant moment which i think is like what you were connecting to as a viewer mm. but like there still wasn't there wasn't a catharsis cuz he was still stuck and he was but he had this he just started falling apart and you could see it very early on in this like in the speech mm-hmm. like you see like Ben Stiller in like this emotionally naked moment um, in a way that I really haven't seen him before. And it was just like, Oh shit. Like the, he was a really fascinating kind of performance moment. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I, I just think that like Noah Baumbach like is such a smart writer and like, he's not really showy in his direction in terms of how like the films look like mm-hmm. he does have a kind of like Woody Allen quality of like leaving style sort of, with the exception of the editing in this film, like, you know, it's, they're not really showy movies, right? But like, he's able to get performances that, that are demonstrating his skills as a director, in addition to being like such a smart, sharp writer. Yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think just to sort of uh, add to what you're saying, I think he's sneaky stylish at times or subtly stylish because yeah, yeah. I even the editing is this evolution of something I remember from Margot at the wedding kind of played with that like super sharp cuts that cut off a sentence before it would normally end. Like he was, I remember it's been, I I haven't seen since that movie came out, but I remember that being the most interesting thing to me about it was he was playing around with this idea of like ending a scene before you would normally get any satisfaction to the end of a scene and just playing with how much he could do that. And, um, Mm -hmm. For one, I love the tension that he builds, and it's. I feel like it's much more thoroughly developed and just used stronger for Meyerowitz stories. And it, the the tension that builds up in these scenes and the anxiety that I was feeling as these family members, like any time <laughs> Adam Sandler or Ben Stiller or you know any any of the actors interact with Dustin Hoffman in this movie, I, I, you just get this. I don't know about you, but I was getting welled up with this anxiety and this tension that he was building, yeah. and that felt mostly new from a bong bok film i mean like uh it's it was just palpable and i i loved feeling that way and the editing serves that but then there's these like at times almost like silent film like goofy um reaction shots that are pretty straightforward as a camera shot you know but like i think of for instance where there are moments where the dustin hoffman character gets embarrassed in a like say a public setting or around a friend and you'll cut to the outside and he's running away like it's just like this really yeah. instant cut, but it, to me, it's like a really funny, almost like uh, something you'd see in a Chaplin movie or a Buster Keaton movie, you know, like shot yeah. of a guy running away. So funny, right? Well, I think, yeah, that's also uh, where he and Wes Anderson have similar sensibilities. I think that like the right. framing of a shot where something kind of like goofy and human runs through like a very strategically framed shot, you know, like right. that sort of reminds me of stuff that would you would see in like, bottle rocket or stuff like that you know where it's just like it's a very still 
moment like shooting something and then you see a, a tiny neurotic Dustin Hoffman scurry through you know <laughs> yeah watching them run was just like viscerally funny to me and then they even use these kind of beautiful little simple shots they repeat through the different um through the siblings of Dustin Hoffman um God, who's the actor that played Jean the sister she was great too and I wasn't I'm gonna look it up uh, Elizabeth Marvel plays Jean their sister so it's so it's Adam Sandler and Elizabeth Mar- Marvel are the like the half siblings to Ben Stiller in this movie mm-hmm. um, and you immediately understand the dynamic uh, like Squid in the Whale I think this movie establishes the familial dynamic really efficiently and uh, you just you're just in it right from there um, but I loved the way it will repeat that later on in the movie. And you'll see the ways that Bombach in this film, especially conveys that, um, you know, through genetics, through nurture, all these things, like things get passed on to siblings from their parents. Um, I think is, uh, also, I haven't totally, uh, I don't think either of us have said how much, like, I gotta say, I think this might be my favorite Noah Bombach Bombach film actually. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, man. I gotta say, I just gotta like put it out there because it's like, um, it's it's all the things like I've been saying, uh, and I think it feels like something he's been building up to. You know, like as he's maturing as a filmmaker, I would say he's become much warmer as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and more uh, open to other stories because that would include stories that don't really have his traditional uh, daddy or family issues. Because Francis Ha and Mistress America, they kind of exist as something else in his filmography and they're nice little breezy, enjoyable movies. And while we're young has maybe more of the traditional elements of a Noah Baumbach film, but it's very overall quite warm film film to its characters. And I didn't, that's for me what was lacking in um, Margot at the wedding in Greenberg from my memory, because squid and the whale is also a rather cold kind of mean movie, but I feel like he went, it also has warmth and things that, that make it feel like worth it to go through it where I never got that with Margot or Greenberg. I felt like that was him just sort of doubling down on the, uh, the nastiness. But, um, yeah. I, I ultimately, I just feel like Meyerowitz is right now, this culmination where like, I, I, I think it, it, it might be his best movie. I, I don't know. But, um, I, I was, I was continually surprised by how much I like, grew to like these people. And I can't say that for a lot of his movies. Well, no, I mean, you can't, a lot of his characters are like memorable, but there was a way like as annoying as these people are and their neuroses are just laid bare in this movie. I enjoyed spending time with them, you know? And, uh, I can't always say that about his, his tough movies. I think with, with this one, uh, in particular, and maybe while we're young as well, like Mm -hmm. there's, there's a pervasive decency to the characters that like, even as like, there are some really brilliantly kind of dialogue, brilliantly structured dialogue scenes where, uh, yes. Dustin Hoffman will be continuing like a train of thought that is not acknowledging anything. <laughs> the person who's talking to him is saying, uh-huh. and so it's like, they're trying to communicate and he's keeping a train of thought. And there's just, so there's just like parallel scenes of like <laughs> monologues that are going on. It's brilliant. And, uh, I think that like that that they're even as like you're kind of exposing the kind of pathetic nature of neurotic intellectuals. Uh, there there is a decency to the characters like wanting to truly communicate. Whereas like with Greenberg, you're you're kind of forced to sit with someone whose handicap is their unpleasantness, and yeah. like they can't they can't seem to overcome it. 
And then eventually, like, you see that there's a glimmer of hope that they can. But I think most people, like, they've written off people like that in their life so often that they're Mm -hmm. just like, well, that guy's just an asshole. Like, I don't want (laughs) to. And I had a window of time where, like, I had gone to, uh, what was it? It was a wedding shower. And I was just like, there was there was such a like the the banality of it and the normality of it was mm. so excruciating that I wanted something mean to shatter it, kind of. <laughs> so Greenberg was like right in line with like this. Okay, as much as this is an extreme, I kind of need this as a rinse off. There but is like, an honesty to Greenberg. There really is. Yeah, and I think like once you start to realize that Greta Gerwig's character is the sort of like kind of true protagonist of the movie. Yeah then like it's easier to sort of tolerate his kind of Ben Stiller's character Greenberg, his like stormy kind Mm. of uh, shittiness, you know, that's a good point. And, but it is, it is nice to like move into a sense of, uh, of, of warmth and decency that doesn't feel over sentimentalized or like a lie as a filmmaker kind of gets older, you know, like, yeah, there just seems to be a a sense of settling into yourself and kind of aiming for your, your your better being basically you know and yeah. uh uh if 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 we want to pivot maybe to uh to the the hold up portion we can get to like his his origin story of his first movie you i'm know? into i'm into it real quick i just want to say just just like the overlapping dialogue that you're speaking of is mm-hmm. the other really brilliant achievement i think in this movie um because it takes what robert altman was doing with that idea in the 70s yeah. and stuff and really just uses it to just instantly create the dynamic that these, these, uh, you know, these kids and their father have with each other. Um, and it was, it was so well done and so simply staged that I just, I, I, I found it perfect because it really touches on that thing with, I think all family does that. There's just a point where you're trying to catch up with each other, but you're both just talking at each other as opposed to even listening um, I, I have that experience on the phone sometimes when I talk with, uh, you know, family members or old friends, you know, like suddenly we're both talking and neither of, <laughs> neither of us is willing to like stop and back down to be like, what were you saying? You know, like, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just I found that so perfectly realized in this movie. So, um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm I tell really... people to shut the fuck up. For it. Hey, look, we're doing it right now. We're talking over each other. <laughs> exactly. That's OK. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, so yeah, just one of the other really many things I, I I loved about this this movie. So yeah, I'm really big on on the Meyerowitz stories, but um, I am I am also very happy to uh, dig into this this kicking and screaming. Hey there, folks! Just gonna pop in really quick and uh, do another shout out to a sponsor of this episode, which comes from our friends at the Criterion Collection. Uh, last week's episode, I mentioned uh, the release of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon on Blu-ray through Criterion, The Piano Teacher. And, of course, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, film Vampire. Uh, Those are now available on Criterion. And uh, look out because you know those flash sales will be coming out here probably in the next few months. uh, And uh, you could get a really good deal on some of these. Barry Lyndon, worth noting that uh, it is finally presented in the proper aspect ratio. So Kubrick Files uh, are probably going to want to jump on that Barry Lyndon release. And the big one that I need to put a shout out, uh, thanks to Criterion, is their Blu-ray release of Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. They've been, uh, lately at Criterion, they've been mining the David Lynch uh, filmography to put out more and more of his titles. And uh, I think us movie lovers uh, are all the better for it. 
Uh, Twin Peaks Fire Rock with me is a pretty incredible film and a lot better than I remembered it uh, when I watched it again recently. So um, very cool that that's coming out on Blu-ray. And just in time now that the Twin Peaks, the return series um, has come to a conclusion not too long ago. It's all very fitting. So we thank Criterion for their support of, uh, of this show and their continued support. Now back to the show. Meeny, 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 meeny. Zach, do you have Dr. Giggle's letterbox? Insane doctors right next to interesting failures. This bastard wasn't kind, didn't rewind, and now, mister, you'll get fined. When I make my movie, they're going to have a hell of a time finding a category for it. Did I tell you about my movie? Yes. Well, it's changed a little bit. Now it's about this guy who lives with his mother, right? And they sort of fall in love. It's real uh, shocking, you know, like Lolita. There were blood relations in Lolita. Well, see, I'm doing something different then, and I'm playing with gender roles. They probably put it in offbeat. They're way offbeat. See, you're shocked. This is uh, this is my pick for Hold Up, which Hold Up is a segment where we take something. Originally, it was something that, uh, that we hold dear... Um, a film, but maybe had a problematic past in terms of its critical reception, its popular reception when it came out. And so we take an opportunity to re-examine the movie, offering each other as a critical counterpoint to pick apart what does and doesn't work about it. But it's kind of, the segment has evolved to sort of just be about films that made an impact and how they hold up over time. And uh, this is one for sure that... uh, I saw when it came out on video and liked it, but like didn't really start to really like it until I was like rewatching it over and over again. (laughs) And it's one that like, you know, since I saw it and since it started to kind of like get steam and become funnier every time I watched it, because there's just dialogue that like I would miss, like, you know, in the, in the first viewing that like side dialogue, like lines that you would hear that you can't even see the person talking, but you just hear them like off camera, say something in a bar scene. And it was just like getting funnier and funnier every time I saw it. So I would just recommend this movie like 10 years after the fact in like the mid two thousands and people would be like, yeah, it's just so nineties though. And I was like, all right, so eventually, like, now we're at a point where it's like, that used to be a criticism of the 80s, but now that's sort of taken as a time capsule quality that makes it almost more endearing for that effect. So now that the 90s nostalgia has been well underway and in full swing, is, is that an apt criticism anymore? Like, is does the movie, is it so trapped in its era that it doesn't, that its strengths don't persevere. Cause like I had people just flat out dismiss it. They're like, it's too nineties. And I was like, really, what am I missing? Like, what is like, cause every time I would start to watch it again, I would just fall into the rhythms of it. And, uh, so what, what, what's your experience with like when you first saw it? Well, I'm going to start first by saying, Joe, this movie holds up big time. Like I, okay. I, it, I'm with you, man. Like the, that criticism is, I think, just a another example of something we we talk about a lot. Of like people just don't have time for things, and if they don't want to revisit something, it's really easy to be like, "Oh, it's so '80s, it's so '90s." I think someone said it's so '80s when we did a podcast about the Terminator back in the day, 
And there was yeah. a coworker of ours who, of course, said that right after we had like talked about that dismissal, that saying. And sure yeah, enough, like, yeah. People just need a reason to disqualify something because they just like now. Now there's just too much information, too much content to take in. So any reason to be like, no, can't, don't wanna. Nineties, no. Like, <laughs> how about yes, nineties? Nineties are. Do you love it again? Lisa Loeb. Everybody loves everything about the nineties all over. Lisa Loeb, nice deep reference. Um, <laughs> so you only hear what like, you want to. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Where is Ethan Hawke when we need him? Yes. Um, <laughs> So, so this movie, like, I, again, like I started it again because it's, it's most of Noah Baumbach's movies are streaming on Netflix with the exception of the squid and the whale at this point, yes. but kicking very much is. And, uh, like I just restarted it and, uh, just the, I think it's probably the most, uh, showy of dialogue. Like I think mm-hmm. the nineties, if anything, it was an era where like the theatricality of dialogue was acceptable. And I think like Quentin Tarantino played a big part in that. And mm-hmm. not that Noah Baumbach's dialogue shares anything with Quentin Tarantino, except for maybe an occasional pop culture reference. But like there right. was a sort of like audience acceptance of dialogue sounding like dialogue, you know, in mm-hmm. the nineties. And it's not the only era obviously where that was the case, but you know, it just seemed like, in later films, Noah Baumbach naturalized his dialogue to a point where it didn't sound like uh, terse, monotone recitals of incredibly smart quips, yeah, you know? Right. And like, that's like, if you accept that about this movie, you're like in for like such a great ride and a surprisingly emotionally resonant one. Cause like, once the walls come down of these, like, basically the movie is about. Uh, these four friends who graduate college and then do not move on from the college town that they live in and sort of about, you know, what we were describing about Noah Baumbach's oeuvre being about intellectuals feeling trapped by their own intelligence. Like that's the start of this basically about Mm -hmm. four dudes who are all neurotic and smart and don't know how to move on. Um, So there's a, (laughs) there's a line early on, uh, that Max says, Max, the grumpiest person in the group, he says, uh, what I used to be able to pass off as a bad summer could now potentially turn into a bad life. Because <laughs> like they're not moving on. They're not going on to another school year. Their life has begun. And like there's a lot of grappling with that. And like, again, that that's a point where, you know, like you're leaving college and like there's a lot of kind of like self-seriousness that like once i think you get to a certain level of adulthood you realize how ridiculous that is and maybe people don't like to look at that time in their in their kind of upbringing Mm -hmm. you know but like i think that the movie serves up that as ridiculous as it is like these people are just like they're in this weird limbo in this kind of nether world of like not moving on into their adult adulthood and how ridiculous and pathetic that can be. Yeah, you know? no, no, absolutely, man. I think it's part of what makes kicking and screaming. And for me was a reminder on this second viewing um, is th- this is a fairly original movie 
to be about the college experience because I, I I can't think of other movies that really focus on that period right after you graduated. And that's the entirety of this movie. You know, most of them focus on the everybody wants some idea or, you know, an animal house, the actual college experience. And yeah. there's for one that makes this movie, I feel like it slots it into a fairly original realm of the college experience movie. And I think it's what also elevates it include with also including with like the dialogue you're you're speaking of the the uh the acting all of it the way the memories are staged in this movie the uh flashbacks are really elegantly done yeah. um and also like subtly stylish like we've been talking about with his his work um right yeah i think it's what makes kicking and screaming hold up as just a, a great movie of that ilk in the in the 90s like it was really in its peak in the mid 90s where like you could have indie releases like this that were just so so they seemed so much more elevated and bigger than they really were, you know, like budget wise, story wise, all that. They just they're like, these were movies like kicking and screaming belongs in a cinema, even though it's not what you would normally think of. Uh, it's just it's, it, it to me, it's a reminder of like how good things could be back, back in the 90s. So the the yeah. whole the whole 90s, it's two 90s thing for me is just laughable. And I think it's just people not giving it giving it a chance because. Um, I came to this movie much later. I, I think I saw it. I saw it after Squid and the Whale was my first Bombach film. And okay. I, I really loved it. Uh, uh, it up until Meyerowitz stories, maybe it has been my favorite movie. I, I'm still still working on that list, I guess. But it, either way, I, I wanted to catch up with his other work. So I went back and and saw Kicking and Screaming, you know, in the mid 2000s. And I thought it was I thought it was solid, but this second viewing I actually came to appreciate it much more. So I think even my barriers to watching a movie that might feel too nineties, like I broke them down with this with this viewing and just really found it to be a funny, pleasurable, honest experience that was has those elements of like the bombback mean spiritedness, or I guess mean honesty, like brutal honesty might be a good way to put it. And I actually come to enjoy those scenes the most in this movie where like one of the friends cheats uh, on the others with his girlfriend and it comes to a head in a scene and it's brutal. And then you don't even see one of those characters anymore after that, but it's all, you know, yeah. it's employed so strongly in the movie and it, it felt real. And there are times where I feel like, man, I wish I would have had the guts to say that to a friend whose friendship at that time just came to an, had an expiration date. You know, there are just some people you can only be friends with. And it's kind of weird that you are in a very short window of time. And college in my memory was filled with that sort of experience. I don't know about you, but this movie really nails that idea. Yeah, that's and like yeah, that scene plays out so beautifully. Like the the kind of cross dialogue that we we're talking about with the Meyerwood stories, like is it you know he he kind of mastered dialogue so early, and in this movie, there's a tradition of like the characters all engaging in like uh, trivial contests. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so they're they're like naming off like trivia. And like that's happening as this like tension is mounting between this like revelation of like one friend betraying the other. And it's just like it's so beautifully played out in that scene. Mm -hmm. And there's just like, I don't know, there's something about, you know, nowadays not to, you know, measure it up to current events or anything. But there just seems to be like in uh, like a tightness and an acceleration that's happening nowadays mm. where it's like the space that you were kind of allowed. Like, I think we talked about this with suburbia when we did a hold up uh, mm -hmm. segment at, 
Whereas like, you know, if these characters had cell phones, they would just be like staring at them the entire time and not musing and like pontificating about like how miserable their life was. Right. But there was like a space carved out where like their misery was almost like it was like a luxury kind of because uh-huh. they had time to kind of like ponder it. And like there's there's like so much space in the movie and so much like so much beautifully awkward pausing and, and stuff like that. And like, there's, there's a real, there's a real sweetness, especially towards the end of the movie. And like, uh, as I wrapped up watching it this last time, like it, it did make me tear up. Like where Grover, the main character played by Josh Hamilton, who's mm-hmm. a, he's a great actor. Like yeah. I just don't see him, Josh Hamilton. He pops up uh, in Meyerowitz stories briefly as well. Yeah, that's true. It's great to see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he his like similar to kind of Ben Stiller's revelatory speech where it's just like he you it doesn't go where you think it should in a traditional kind of like cathartic sentimental scenario. Mm. But there still is like it, there's an emotional resonance to it. And like also the conclusion of the movie, like that's something that like Noah Baumbach is very good at in like a handful of his movies that he knows how to button a film the way like David Gordon Green in his first few films would like, he would find like a beat to just like blackout and yeah. he'd be like, wow, that was perfect. That was a perfect <laughs> ending. And like kicking and screaming to me has a perfect heartbreaking, sweet ending. It really does, man. It's, it's, that was the other thing that, that I was like, oh, I forgot like how beautifully he buttons that movie up, you know, and and employing a flashback to to a greater moment, you know, a better moment. It, it's it, it's it was pretty much perfect for sure. Um, that that's the thing, right? Like this is a movie that's been done to death, especially in American movies, like the college comedy. If you want to sort of Netflix broadly, <laughs> yeah, sort of put this in a, a box. If you if you want to label it like as such, sure. But it's 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 what he usually does is he's taking common types of movies or, you know, even played out types of movies, but like finding new ground in there. And I think it's what makes comparing talking about kicking and screaming with Meyerowitz stories is another sort of fun. Just, you know, it worked out that way for us is that like they they both are typical kinds of movies, but, you know, finding new ground to explore there and, and actually proving that like you shouldn't. Uh, it's not it's not what the movie's about it's how it's about it right it's that that ebert saying i still stand by yeah. and uh that's that's the secret sauce i think for noah Baumbach, uh is that um it might seem easy to to not bother with his stuff because you've seen it all before but i don't think you have and kicking and screaming just moves past that i i think is elevated beyond that oh forget it it was back in the 90s because it's just a good movie and um yeah I, I enjoyed the hell out of it a lot more than I even did the, the first time. So um, here's to hold do up. A, yeah. Do you have a, do you have a line that sticks out from the movie? I, I don't have a specific line, but I, I had forgotten about their sort of um, ding trivia games that they do, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. the, the movie trivia games. Like I immediately sort of like nerded out to that. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. I kind of wish I had a group of friends. Like, right. In college, that like, I could name, name me ten movies where monkeys play a key role <laughs> and they start making up monkey titles. Monkey, monkey, Ted and Alice, totally Carl monkeys. There's there's another Monkeyta. <laughs> there's another. They do the uh, Friday the Thirteenth titles, which I thought was yeah. uh, you know, Jason fun. sucks some cock. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Jason sucks some cock. <laughs> 
I uh, the uh, another scene, maybe not specific dialogue that that stood out that really is maybe a better answer to what you're asking is uh, the last one that takes place in a video store where. Uh, the mm-hmm. guy that owns it and is training uh, the very neurotic, uh, anxious character. I can't think of his name. Sorry. Um, Gro- uh, uh, no, it's uh, – oh, shit. Yeah, what's that character's name? Well, you think about it while I describe the scene. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, you know, his boss is, like, talking about – he's a classic. And for this movie, it's where it's a great sort of um, – uh, examination of a time where like the mid nineties was all about that video geek that was going to become the next Tarantino. And this movie is totally making fun of that in a way that was pretty great. Even now, even though it was coming right after Tarantino became a big deal after Pulp Fiction. So I love it. It could be seen almost as too easy, but I actually think Bombag never goes there. It's just, it's, it's honest because I, and I'm sure, you know, people like that as well. And the movie's, kind of broad in the way it's making fun of the guy, but it's still honest. And uh, yeah, him talking about his film and how it could one day play in this video store. And then the character, we couldn't think of his name. Otis. Otis. Thank you. Otis is great in this movie. Um, He's so sad. uh, Otis, but he, he's like, Oh, so you'll, you'll keep, you think you'll keep working here. If you are going to plan on working here after you've made a motion picture. (laughs) That and where great... he's like, "Have I told you about my movie yet?" He's like, "Yes." <laughs> like his reaction is so perfect. And they're, and, they're uh, detailing of the sections of the video store. I can't. I'm trying to think of them like crazy nurses or something like that, or Doctor Giggles yeah. comes up and it's crazy doctors or something like. Just these absurd levels of like video store. Someone put terms of endearment in with prison movies. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, and he just yeah he screams because he's so mad. Yeah. Um. Any of that stuff was like gold to me, and never felt like. Uh, this is too easy. It was actually like really fucking funny to me. So yeah. Yeah. And you, you also get, uh, Otis at his send off. You get them walking him to his actual, like, uh, departure point in the airport, which, you know, the in later movies is not going to be a possibility because no one can do that anymore. <laughs> that is so true. That is true. It does date it in that way. But, uh, I still, yeah, I think the movie, I think you're, I, I agree with you that it does hold up. It's good dated, right? That that's a thing. It's good dated. I yeah. would say time capsule. It's, it's fine. Like, let's, can we, can we go back to that time when there was still time left? <laughs> let's ma- let's make that time machine. We'll get on that right away. Yep. All right, man. Well, uh, successful episode here. I'm glad. Hold- I love it when hold up works out, you know, there's always that anxiety where like you or I pick one and one of us may, may not like it, you know, but that's, that's part of the fun. That's part of the, mm-hmm. uh, that's part of the wild card that is hold up. So, um, I don't think we'll have one for the next episode, but I'll definitely try to um, I- I'm going to rack my brain and see what will fit so we can announce it on the next episode, because uh, let's let's keep this train rolling. I think on the hold up uh, segment. I'm liking it. Yeah, please. So just chill to the next episode. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up uh, episode 155 of Adjust Your Tracking? You can find all our episodes at theplaylist.net. There's a podcast tab to click on. You can also uh, it'll also bring you to our other shows that are on the network. Um, you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. We're all there. The Playlist Podcast. All the shows are under that umbrella. Um, you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. What if people want to find us on Twitter and Facebook, Joe? Uh, at adjust your track is our handle on Twitter and, uh, just look up 
adjust your tracking the podcast on facebook and uh you know we we we'll let you know when episodes come out on facebook if you like us there and uh yeah, yeah. we're all over it we're all over it exactly well if you do that if you follow us if you listen to us or hell if you tell people about us we'd be very appreciative but uh i can't be as thankful for that as i am to get to chat with you today joe thanks eric